Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution for centrally managing partial scripts and standardizing and automating IT tasks via a graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. I'm back. I'm Tobias. I'm here with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. It is 2022 now, and for the past three years or so, I've been working from home. And, and before that, before 2019, I also worked from home, but I had an office. I, I, I had a team at the office. I would frequently go to the office. But I also spent a lot of time traveling to customer sites for doing the, the workshops, meetings, trainings, and, and, and whatnot. And, and now, for the past three years, I haven't had an office except my home office. And now, about two weeks from today, I'll be slowly resuming that sort of travel to a customer office and have an in-person workshop. And I'm unsure, what do I need to wear? <laughs> do I need to leave a home 40 minutes before or 50 minutes before to make it in time? Do we do lunch anymore? Or is it, is it more like, yeah, let's sit here and once you're done, you can just leave and let's not do coffee and all the sort of side activities that, that you would normally have. So, so this is probably where I will be spending my thoughts for the next two weeks to, to get the clothes ready, to, to get the laptop bag packed again, because now it's empty, and I not forget the charger and everything else. So you just get a suit jacket, a dress shirt, and a pair of shorts. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That, no, that, that should... Uh, should be fine. I think this is a good question. Like, what mm -hmm. do I wear, and how, what do I do, and what to expect from the office? And I, I think... If I went back to an office now, I would expect to hang out with the coffee machine. Uh, not with the coffee machine, but around the <laughs> coffee machine. <laughs> you know, when you work from home, you can get lonely, so you hang out with the coffee machine. But I think when you're a group of people meeting in the office and everyone now being in the same situation, in the same boat, I think people are really longing for the personal connection again. So I think, you know, there will be a lot of lunch, you know, going out for lunch and a lot of hanging out in the coffee room and just, you know, being able to uh, you know, breathe the fresh air of communicating with other real humans again. So I, I definitely would have only good expectations on what would come out of the office. Perhaps a 50-minute commute might be a bit over the top for me, especially since I've been working from home for, uh, for eight years, give or take. So I kind of got used to not having the commute a bit. But I do miss this decompressing that you do in the car when I went to the office, I could decompress from family life and, you know, kind of ramp up for what's ahead for the day. And when then you left work, you could kind of decompress the work day and maybe it took 20, 30 minutes to get home and to the family. And then you're ready for family and you, you kind of already processed everything from work. Whereas now I go from my office building, which is next to my main building. It's an old garage. It's four meters, and the commute is literally three seconds. So as soon as I fold the lid of the laptop down and I go over to the main building, I have two kids screaming or, or jumping around, and like there's no breather in between. So you have to be disciplined now to uh, like go for a walk or find other ways to get this area of decompression. 
but that is like I, I talked to a lot of people and everyone said, oh, I don't miss commuting. I really do miss commuting. The short types of commute where I could go in the car, listen to a podcast or listen to the news or just be listen to some music and, and kind of decompress my thoughts from the day. So I, I missed that part, perhaps not being stuck in traffic. Anyway, on my side, I'm still recovering from the virus. You know, we've got the sniffles and cough still remaining. So it's been a few weeks now. I think this is our second week. We're like closing in on two and a half weeks with uh, post-COVID now or since we got it. So it's taking its time. So I'm just hoping to be back in the saddle quite literally very soon because I, I realized that as soon as I stop working out, it takes about a week and then I can feel this like tangible decrease in brain efficiency. So I'm, I'm really hoping for this to pass so we can get back to our healthy normal selves and get back to working out. I can jump on the saddle and on, on my bike and do my workouts because I, I really feel when I have this kind of regular cadence of working out maybe three or four times a week, you know, the brain is on fire every day. Whereas now it's, you have this kind of decrease in, in productivity, like you can feel almost the brain cells, they're slowing down. And because I don't drink coffee anymore, I never get the kick, you know, in the morning that you could get with, with a nice cup of cappuccino, you woke up, you had your shower, you had a toast or whatever, and you had a cup of coffee and then you kind of ignited everything in the brain. I get that from my workout, but since I don't work out right now, you know, we're still recovering from this thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty tangible. You, you can feel everything uh, kind of slowing down uh, in the brain. So I'm really hoping for that to, to uh, pass. So maybe, that's, that's what's up. Maybe get back on the coffee. Life will be easier. Yeah, work out or coffee. That's your choice. <laughs> exactly. So today, this is episode 124, SFTP with Azure Storage. We mentioned this new capability. It's, it's currently in preview. And, and we did slightly touch on this during episode 112 when we did an update on, on whatever is new in Azure. And now we've had time to, to try this out. So some thoughts, some insights, some opinions on using SFTP with Azure. But perhaps before we actually get to the feature, I, I feel it would be good to sort of, sort of line up the differences between FTP, SFTP, and FTPS. Are these things that, that when you wake up in the morning without coffee, that you think through, yeah, should I use FTP today or SFTP or FTPS? Yeah, that's a great question. This is the only thing I think about every day when I wake up. <laughs> What should I do today? Should I use FTP, SFTP, or FTPS? That is the main question on my mind every day. So, I mean, I, I can say that you speak for yourself when you say that we tried this out. I looked at it, but I, I haven't really had a chance to try it out yet. So I can probably ask you some questions uh, today to, uh, to learn more about this. But, you know, for me, we don't use FTP to search accounts whatsoever. We, we use Azure Policy to block that entirely because the, we don't have that we don't have a reason to use that or upload files using FTP or stuff like that because all the, all the things we do operate within our SaaS cloud and, and, and you know, inter-services communication. So there's, there's no need for that. I do see the need for, for certain things, but I never contemplated really on the choice here. The only thing I know is highest version of TLS, use SSL, ensure you're running over a secure connection. That's pretty much the limit of my thoughts here. So if you go through these things, FTP, FTPS, and SFTP, as you mentioned, what do I need to know about these things? So, so FTP, File Transfer Protocol, 
unencrypted method of transferring files between systems. I, I had to look this up on Wikipedia. So the first incarnation of FTP was in 1971, so about 50 years ago. And the first time I've used this was in 1988. I, I think I was 11 years old then, and I somehow got access to my cousin's university Unix account because Linux didn't <laughs> exist at the time. Uh -oh. <laughs> and, and, and I needed to try, hey, what's this FTP command that I can, I, can, I can use? So since then, FTP has mostly been the same. You connect to a remote system, and then you, then you execute commands like, like uh, putting files or, or getting files, uploading, downloading, and so on, and traversing through the directories. That's it. It's, it's really about transferring files. But because it's unencrypted, you really shouldn't use this. And most modern browsers, Chrome, Firefox at least, they do not support this anymore. But it's still there. Uh, FTPS is a secure implementation. So it's FTP over TLS. It used to be FTP over SSL. But now it's over so, TLS. So, so that's kind of the, when you have HTTP, you, you go to website HTTP, that's the unencrypted. And, and then you do HTTPS, you get the TLS version. So over, yeah. running over uh, uh, encrypted. Okay. A exactly. And if you use something like FileZilla or some other client software you can you can typically download as an open source implementation. It has built-in support for FTPS. And then finally, we have SFTP, which is FTP over SSH, so FTP over Secure Shell. And one of the benefits of SFTP is that it requires only a single TCP port to function, as opposed to with FTP, you would always have these additional requirements on the firewall. Yeah, we need this and that, and perhaps the data port there and there. So it was a bit problematic to secure those. But SFTP and FTPS, those are the two that you can use today. And SFTP is the implementation that Microsoft has selected that, yes, this is what we want to support. Even though FTPS works on the app service. So if you provision a web app, you can connect with that to FTPS and upload files and whatnot. But this is different now with this new preview feature. This is SFTP, so FTP over SSH for Azure Storage. So it's not, it has nothing to do with websites or app services or functions or anything like this. This is just about moving files to and from the cloud using a storage account. This is it. So have I sold you on the idea that you need to ditch all those modern things and just move to SFTP? Yeah, I think we're going to discontinue everything we do in the cloud and just set up storage account with SFTP because this seems to be the future. No, so, yeah. I, so I really like this idea. It's, it's kind of similar to what we talked about in, in a previous episode where I think we talked about Azure Bastion and, and the new capabilities here. We use the Azure CLI to kind of open a tunnel specifically to, uh, to be able to jump on your, your Bastion stuff. And I, I see this as something similar then, instead of FTPS, which existed for quite some time, uh, which is the FTP with TLS, and so you have the encrypted edition. So instead of that, now you open a, a tunnel or you, you open your SSH shell to connect it to, to that environment. And, and it's kind of like you say, you don't have the same requirements to configure firewalls and prepare your network in the same way. So I would expect here, if I can just, in my network, if I can open an 
SSH shell to any connection, then I can use this, right? Without yeah. like tinkering much with the network. Yeah, exactly. And the, the whole purpose for this is, is for moving files and data between systems. And, and obviously you could just expose an endpoint to HTTPS, download whatever I have on Azure storage. Here's the endpoint in, in a blob in Azure storage. That works fine and you can continue using that. But the thing here is especially for integrations. So many systems, mainframes, uh, SAPs, different Linux and Unix boxes and Windows boxes, they produce data that you need to utilize elsewhere. And far too often I see those classic CSV files being used because it just works. So it could be XML or JSON or text files or CSV or whatever else. But you need to do this sort of scheduled batch upload. Let's say every Monday we are getting all the data from the past seven days up uploading a CSV file to this system. It's crunching through that and, and doing something and cleaning up the data, perhaps storing that in a database to be utilized elsewhere for reporting and whatnot. And for this, I see SFTP as key because now I don't have to provision a virtual machine then install IIS in there, or if it's a Linux box, uh, enable an FTP daemon in there, and, and then manage that whole operating system. Now I, I just got a platform as a service service on top of Azure Storage. So one question here, when you, you know, just thinking about use cases I have, and I might have some backups and I want to ship them to a different storage account and stuff like this. Some of them are in file shares, others are in blob files. Um, when you connect using FTP, you know, whatever edition of the FTP, are you connecting to a file share in a storage account or to a blob? Or where does the files actually end up if I want to then work with the files from the service itself, from any of the APIs or something like that? So, so you're not actually connecting to a file share. And, and that's an interesting aspect here because you would assume that connecting from a Windows or Linux box to Azure storage using SFTP, it would make sense. But you're actually connecting to a blob container. And mm -hmm. as you know, the blob container doesn't really have this file directory mode. You can, you can obviously create files in there, but you don't traverse that the same type as you would do on a, on a, on a Windows box with NTFS file system. So what you need in order for this to work you need a hierarchical namespace. And you get that from data lake storage generation two, which is an add-on option on top of Azure storage. So if you're doing big data or any sort of analytics, you've probably used a data lake solution on top of Azure storage and perhaps combining something else there as well. And when you enable this capability, you get this namespace approach that SFTP requires. And that feature has been built on top of this. So to sort of recap, before we dive deeper into the features, you need an Azure storage account, and that has to have the data lake storage generation two checkbox enabled. And then you need a container, one or multiple containers, and we don't need mean Docker containers, but a container in the blob and that container will then act as the home directory for your users when they access over SFTP. 
that's the whole sort of setup you need. And it's trivial to set up. But there are some interesting aspects here to user access, as well as for pricing. But for user access, uh, Toby, I, I trust that whatever you usually set up, you'd ideally would like to use Azure AD accounts, or perhaps application identities of some sort that you could use to authenticate and authorize your access, right? Yeah, we use managed identity for a lot of things. So both the user assigned managed identity and system assigned managed identity and Azure ID accounts. And this is great for you know, a number of reasons. Maybe we should actually do a show uh, just about uh, authenticating two resources in Azure and, and why you would want to use an Azure AD or account or an, or an identity or why you might want to use a connection string in some cases because there are still cases. Uh, but most of the things we do is is kind of passwordless where we use an identity or, or a user account or service principle. But most of the time we do this because you have full audit logging. You can see what user or what identity made a change, you know, who accessed the system and when and, and things like that, as opposed to when you use only a storage key and you have for a storage account, you have key number one and key number two, but you cannot see who uses them. You can just see someone connected to storage account using key one, you know, that's it but you don't see who that user was because maybe 10 people have access to that key. So for you're right there in the sense that whatever we can, we use identities tied to individuals or tied to specific services. So whenever, you know, whatever point in time, we can always go back, check audit logs and see, okay, what actually happened? Something was deleted. Who deleted it? Why? Was it an accident? Was the application deleted by the application itself? Or was it a user or you know, did something happen along the way? And then you can get this audit trail. So I, I like that. So you mentioned here that you cannot use Azure AD accounts or can we use Azure AD accounts for these things? No, no, you can't. I'm, I'm not entirely sure why not, but oftentimes when a new capability is added to Azure, it's, it's based on something that might be legacy, like in this instance, SFTP and FTP and, and whatnot. So I think building support for Azure AD might be something we'll, we'll get in the future on this initial preview and this sort of 1.0 version. We don't have support for Azure AD accounts. So you cannot create an FTP account in your local Azure AD tenant and then say, let's use this to connect to this Azure storage. It simply doesn't work. Um, so to authenticate, you either use a password or a SSH public-private key approach. And these users that, that you're using to authenticate to your SFTP endpoint, they are local users and local to that Azure storage account. So you're actually provisioning those users within Azure portal by going to the SFTP uh, tab and then saying, yeah, let's add a new user. I want to have a password like this or a public-private key like this. And then if you choose the latter, then you authenticate with the private key. So the public key is stored in Azure, you have the private key and you, you show that private key when you connect and that authenticates you, or you just use, use a password. So, so there's no multi-factor authentication. There's no zero trust in the sense. It's all about plain old local users, just like you would have on a, on a Linux or Windows box, when you create local accounts, you put a password on them, that's it. That's, that, that's really how this has been designed for now. 
I, I wonder if this is part legacy, but also perhaps because most FTP clients use a username and password and or a certificate to, to connect. So maybe this is a, also a reasoning that using AAD accounts or managed identity might perhaps be a difficult thing to, to use to connect specifically over FTP. I don't know, but I, most of the FTPs I've used in the past is username, password, or in some cases, username, password, and you require a certificate or you know, other combinations of some kind of password or connection stream. So maybe there's a reasoning behind that. And, but I think this is good to know. I, I like that you brought that up because in, inherently I would say, well, just use your AAD account and you know, use whatever way you can to connect to the storage account. And you have your RBAC or role-based access control giving you access to that container. But obviously that's not the case. So that's good to know. But it seems simple enough to just go to the portal and provision a user and grant access to this container. That becomes your kind of FTP home directory and then do whatever you need uh, using your credentials. But yeah, uh, definitely something I will keep an eye out for uh, changes here in the authentication because I do, like I mentioned before, I do see some use cases here where you know some of the backups I have uh, are distributed into you know various different places, and we have offline backups, we have like replicas that we spread over, or you know other storage accounts in different regions and different subscriptions, and I see that a lot of the time we transfer quite a lot of data maybe this will be a quicker way to transfer that data uh, than we do today. So definitely something I want to explore. I do not want to do it if it's a username and password. I only want to do it if it's entirely passwordless and I can do it like within the services of Azure. Uh, so, so it doesn't even have to touch any of our computers and we don't have to plug a username and password into the system. Do you know if you can do more granular control? So imagine I set up a, a user account for my backup and I say, you get access to this container, but I only want this account to be able to write to this container, not read, not list any of the files in there, but just get access, like a SAS token. You, you only get access to write into this folder or into this directory or this container, but I don't want this account to be able to read anything because then you can also kind of limit the, the impact if the credentials are exposed. And then, then you can still say, well, they can upload bogus data Trojans, viruses, whatever, uh, which is obviously not good, but they cannot steal the data, which is already in there. Um, so do you, do you know if you can do any of those things? Yeah, you have a limited set of permissions you can, you can allocate for those local users. So when you create a new container in the Azure storage account, and you can, of course, have multiple containers and the user is mapped to, to one of those, uh, the permissions you have is read and write, list and create. So you could give somebody just write permission, but no list or read permission, so they couldn't see what's already in there. I, I feel that's perhaps one of the beautiful things with FTP traditionally, that you can have an endpoint for integration where you can just upload stuff, but you can do anything else. And when you said the, the, the thought on, on the integration bits here, I, I feel that this is enough for most use cases. So what I would perhaps do if I were to architect this in a, in a production environment, I would create a separate storage account, secure that first, limit access, who gets to connect from which VNets and so on, and then have a separate container per environment and, and per need, 
that they could only write or add stuff. And that would be it. So this doesn't have to be a full-blown file transfer mechanism. It can just be enough to receive files. That's it. For availability during preview, and I'm not sure when this will be generally available, but I would anticipate in the next couple of months, hopefully. So availability is, is a bit limited. And in, in Europe, uh, France Central, West Europe, North Europe support it. In the US, East US and North Central US support it. Canada East, Canada Central support it. A couple of ones in Asia as well. But that's it. So you need to have the storage account in one of these supported regions in order to even test this out. Some other bits here, PowerShell, Azure CLI, not supported for now. I would expect some, some, someday to get an update, especially for Azure CLI, to have support for managing SFTP endpoints. But for now, you have to do it through Azure Portal or by using an ARM template. And, and to me, this implies you can use also Azure Bicep, of course. But for now, Azure Portal is probably the easiest to do. So, so this is mostly it. It's, it's, it's quite simple to set up. It works well. And one thing that I did note, I'm running Windows 11 on my main workstations. Windows 10 and Windows 11 have built-in support for SFTP. So on the command prompt, you can just do SFTP and it works. So you don't even need to install an external client like FileZilla or OpenSSH or anything else you already have SFTP from the command line, which is nice. On the servers, I think you have to add something in there, but on workstations, it's supported. The last nice. bit, pricing. What would you guess this, this beautiful feature will cost you? So I think in general, normal storage account costs are pretty low, especially if you do things within the same Azure region. Well, you know, as soon as you do things cross-region, the bill can go quite a lot higher. And I know this because we operate cloud solutions across many different regions. And in the beginning, we did a lot of cross-region communication between storage accounts and, and queues on the storage accounts. And you know that resulted in, in pretty hefty bills exponentially exploding, really. And then we changed. So all these heavy operations happen within the same region. Zero cent cost uh, for anything that happens within the same region in terms of transactions. So I, I would expect for, you know, being based on storage accounts, I would expect that if you stay within the same region or if you do the transfer from a VM in West Europe to another VM in West Europe, then the transaction fee would be perhaps free based on the storage account cost. But then you also mentioned that this requires Azure Data Lake storage general uh, uh, gen two. And I don't know what the build there is, if, if there's anything added on top of that. I know it's normal storage accounts. I could kind of assume and, and anticipate the cost, but I don't know if there's anything on top of that with, uh, with Data Lake. So, so when I was looking at the pricing, obviously I, I started with the fact that yes, Azure storage account fees are X. And, and as you said, those are fairly low typically. So, so one gig stored in here is, is one cent per month, it's essentially nothing. Especially, typically when you, when you transfer CSV files and whatnot for integration purposes, you don't need to transfer 100 gigs per day. You typically have text files that compress real nice. But what's costly here, and this was perhaps for me a bit of a surprise, you have to pay for the transactions in the data lake store gen too. 
and using the Azure pricing calculator with the default assumptions. One storage account, nothing fancy, but I do like the hierarchical namespace. That adds about $80 per month for write and read operations. And this assumes you do 100,000 of each. But then there's something called the other operations, which is $180 on top of this. So now we are at roughly uh, $280. And what the other operations means, all the iterative operations like renaming a directory, renaming a path, doing something that it needs to traverse through the subdirectories and, and recursively do something. So the assumption is that you do 100,000 iterative write operations per month. And this is $156 and read is a little bit cheaper. So that adds up to 180. So it's 180 for the other operations. It's $80 for transactions plus storage plus bandwidth. So that's easily more than $250 a month for using this. And I, I feel that the pricing is a bit of a challenge because what I've been using up until now with some customers is that we spin up an Ubuntu Linux in one of the cheapest VMs, possibly a burstable VM, and we just configure SFTP endpoint there. And that costs us about $20 a month. I do have to manage the VM, of course, and do backups and whatnot. But even then, I was perhaps hoping that the data lake store gen tube wouldn't be as expensive. Obviously, it will be less if you are not planning on doing 100,000 iterative write operations per month. But since it's, it's sort of the default option already in there, I think the expectation there is that, yeah, you're going to do about this amount with regular use. And I'm not sure before we actually get to use this more. I think that you know that's good insights as well, and I can I can say for looking at the prices here that you mentioned, you know, hundred thousand operations is not a lot, depending of course on what you do. If this is about storing my backup files, yeah, then maybe I do it once a day, and maybe there will be a few hundred operations per day, then we're good. But if it's about creating the backup data, which is essentially iterating over a lot of the data we have. Uh, to generate the, da the data backup. That's hundreds of millions of queries. So obviously that would not work over FTP. So then, you know, design your scenarios with this in mind. You know, then you, in my case, I would aggregate and, and build the backup files first, and then I would send them over SFTP uh, when I have created the, the backup set or the, the set of backup files, as opposed to doing that over the wire and saying, send everything over, and then it sits in the backup. So first aggregate it and, and bundle it and then send it over. But you know, it all comes down to what scenario you're using this for. Um, like I said, I, I don't use this today, and, but I do see some use cases for it. I will keep an eye out for if there is like serverless authentication, uh, sorry, passwordless authentication coming. So you can use an identity or an AAD account uh, because that's something that I would really, uh, really uh, see as a benefit for some of the scenarios I have. Um, but in general, we don't use FTP today, so I, I, I don't think I'm missing out. But I, I also do know a lot of enterprise customers that still use a lot of FTP for a lot of things, not just backups, but you know all kinds of uh, collaboration of big files and 
some customers have 3D drawing files and they can be huge, several gigabytes, and you need to ship them over to the cloud quickly for someone else to download and you know, try different solutions. But in the end, using FTP, drop them somewhere is always the quickest for them. Um, so I see this as an option for, for several companies who is already using FTP and maybe just a, a, a new way to securely connect to, uh, to your storage accounts. Indeed. And what's implied in that documentation for this preview feature is that there might be possible feature costs added when the SFTP capability goes into GA. And those haven't been listed or perhaps published yet. So I, I hope there will be some normalization in terms of cost here, because otherwise this will be simply too expensive. You mentioned the, the, the millions and millions of transactions that you typically see in, in, in your projects and in your line of work. Just yesterday, I found one of my sort of leftover storage accounts that was triggering about 8 million transactions per day. And it was nothing fancy, just something that hits the storage account every second. And it doesn't really add that much up to the cost, but I was trying to be clever and I had enabled the Defender for Cloud storage account capability in there. So <laughs> the storage account itself was about $50 a month, but the Defender capability, since it was analyzing each of those 8 million requests per day, that was about $300 a month for securing those. So once you disable that, you, you go down again. But it's surprisingly easy to start hitting in the millions of transactions. And I feel that could be done here as well with the SFTP capability. Just uh, on a note of the Defender thing, I also had, we, we do a lot of transactions with storage accounts and I had Defender for Cloud enabled automatically for all storage accounts. Of course. And some of them are non-critical, so we wouldn't need it. Um, and the same thing happened there. And we're talking thousands of dollars of extra. And I was trying to figure out where's this coming from? Why am I getting this bill? This is perhaps not a bill uh, I would anticipate, but you know, I'll look into it. And then I realized, well, we just automatically rolled out every single storage account into Defender. And, you know, we had billions of transactions uh, over, you know, two months and it was, it was not cheap to say the least. So there's, I think we, you know, maybe we do a lessons learned on cost in Azure at some point, because there is, at least I have a lot of lessons learned, uh, both from my own mistakes, but also from stories from the community and customers, uh, you know, saying that if I would have known this, I would have saved this much. Yeah. So the last bit on this episode is the unexpected question. And I do have a great question for you, Toby. Are you ready? Good. Yeah, go. Okay, so I was research, researching for this question, and I did learn a bit, bit of news about Sweden here as well. So in Sweden, you have or had something called the Dagen H. That's when you switch from left-hand traffic to the right-hand traffic. This was in September 1967. I, I, I think it's called Höger Trafiken, Höger Trafikom Legningen. And... <laughs> If you now wanted to have a Dagen Z for Zimmergren to switch back to left-hand traffic, how would you do this? <laughs> so th that is an unexpected question. <laughs> um, you know, um, I have reflected on this uh, pr 
perhaps a few times because once I drove in London, this was not a great experience for me. Um, you know, driving in, in England or, or any country where you drive on the left side of the road, uh, like many Asian countries, not ideal for me who is driving on the right side of the road for all my life. I, I was contemplating about this because I was driving with a friend. This was actually to an event, to a community event in the SharePoint space at the time. And, and I was high, you know, hitching a ride from Sweden all the way to, to London. And at some point I, I got to drive a bit and I drove for about five minutes. And I'm like, look, <laughs> if, if nobody else is going to drive, let's just put the car here. I'll, I'll pay for a taxi wherever we need to go. I don't care. I was about to go into a roundabout the wrong way. Right. You come to the roundabout and you turn right, obviously, because that's what you do in every other country in the world. And, but not in, in these few countries where you drive on the, on the left side of the road. So I was about to go in the wrong way and, you know, being in, in the outer rim of London and the traffic was OK. But then I imagine we were going into the city center. And if I were to drive there and I made a mistake in the city center, it could be a catastrophe. So I have reflected a bit on it. I mean, I never reflected on if I had the possibility to switch back to left-hand traffic. Number one is uh, why, uh, of course. But if this were to happen, my, like speaking for myself and how I drive, I would probably buy a car with the steering wheel on the left side and then always think the side of the car you're sitting, which would be left, is the side of the road you need to be sticking to, which is the left. Because that's how it is today. If you're driving on the right side of the road, you're sitting on the right side of your car. So as, as long as you know right and left, then, then that should be no problem. And, and I also know some people have ideas like if you're driving, if it's a, a left side of the road driving country, then you should have the center line at any given place, things like that. I think that becomes too many things to keep track of. To me, just keep it simple. You're sitting on the right side of your car. You should stick to the right side of the road. So stay as close to the curb as you can, you know, not the middle section. Then, then you know you're on the right side. But that's it. That's the end of my reflection on this. So <laughs> I, I know this happened in 1960-something in Sweden. And I, you know, I hope we never get back there. I think my house was built on or around the same year that this happened. And I have a very old house. So it, I know it's some time ago. So. Let's hope we don't go back there, not because I wouldn't enjoy driving on the left side, but I think society as a whole would have a really hard time kind of adjusting to that because I, I know when they did this in, in the 1960s, I've read the stories, I've seen some news about the craziness of that change, but you know, all for the better in the end. But if you were to do it now with 100 times more traffic, 100 times more bike traffic, car traffic, logistic traffic, all kinds of traffic, it would be a nightmare. So, you know, just thinking about all the signs of the road, you have to change them to the other side. You know, who's going to do that? It's going to require 100 million new people to do that. So, yeah, I, I haven't reflected a lot on that. So my answer is stick to the side of the road as the side of the car you're sitting in. Final answer. Makes sense. Makes sense. I, I like this approach. I, I toyed with the idea how I would do this in Finland. And, and we perhaps, well, we have less people than you have in Sweden, but we have some traffic here as well. I, I like simple solutions. So I would simply say, 
So starting January 1st, everybody switches to left-hand traffic, except BMW drivers. Those will switch on February 1st. And then let's see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Alrighty, this was episode 124 SFTP with Azure Storage. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you join us next week as well. Bye-bye. All right, see you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.